Good morning. All right, let's be in class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for this opportunity to study about your kingdom and of love and truth. We ask that your spirit will join us and give us insight into the message you have for us today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And a couple of announcements. Remember, the Remedy app for the New Testament app for um, iOS and Android is free. And then uh, thanks to Karen Covey, who helped research uh, and found uh, probably the best Bible app available on the market called uh, My Bible App. And this has a whole host of other resources and other Bible comparisons. And through her discussions with the uh, um, developer, they now have the Remedy on that Bible app. We have a new TV program that will be uh, broadcasting on WBTN-TV starting first Tuesday in March. So the first Tuesday in March, we will start our first show. It'll be 7 p.m. every Tuesday. It's the Dr. Tim Jennings show. So watch for that. I think you'll find it very interesting. So class today, the role of stewardship, lesson 10 in the uh, quarterly stewardship motives of the heart. Uh, This week, uh, my five-year-old granddaughter, Lennox, got the flu, influenza A, And uh, she was terribly sick, crying, hurting all over, feverish. And as all the parents and grandparents in this room will know exactly what I mean when I say, I hate the flu. (laughs) You know what I mean, yes? Uh, With a real passion, real hatred, I would destroy the flu if I could destroy it. But, But I don't hate Lennox, even when she's sick. Only love for her. See, viruses are a good metaphor for sin. The HIV virus is uh, so difficult to eradicate because it hides inside your immune cells where your body can't even recognize it's there and it doesn't get to it to kill it. There are other viruses and the physical viruses. Your computer can get a virus. The virus of code, of processing that hijacks the system and alters its normal function. And sin is like that second virus, a virus of thought. And there are many different types of viruses. There are many different types of distorted ideas that can get in our mind that can cor- corrupt the code and our functioning. But just like HIV virus, which hides inside the immune cells and thus avoids detection, the most destructive lies are those that hide inside our churches and inside our doctrines and that we promote as if they were trues. Recently, I, see, I received an email from an online listener who genuinely appreciates our ministry and and testified how much the ministry has been blessing to her and her family, but was concerned that sometimes I sound like I'm attacking uh, and and being negative, and this could offend some, and, and she felt uncomfortable sharing some of our materials when I'm doing that, and I think she raised a very good point. I don't want to sound like I'm attacking or being negative, but how do we point out the infection of thought? How do we attack the virus of HIV if we don't diagnose that somebody has it and what it's doing and the corruption that it's causing? How do we point out an infection of thought within Christianity that, you can, that, that still sounds like and understands that we are trying to uh, protect Christianity, not hurt Christianity? She suggested that we should focus just on the positive. And I think there's a lot of benefit in focusing on the positive. There's no question that that's true. But I think we're also to focus on the truth as it is, the whole truth. And some of the truth is that there are lies being told. And the spirit of truth is the spirit to convict the world of sin, according to Jesus, which means to diagnose accurately the condition, what's going wrong, what's the problem. Would we do our patients 
a disservice if we focused only on their positives. When Lennox went to the doctor, uh, would, would her parents have been happy if the doctor would have pointed out how pretty her eyes are or beautiful blonde hair she has? And, and, uh, or, or were they wanting them to point out the, the actual infection? What's wrong? Find the problem. So if you feel like I'm sounding negative, help me, help me say it more graciously and help me say it more kindly, but still I think we need to identify where the problem is so people can make a choice to get rid of the, the distorted ideas that might be causing problems. First paragraph in Sunday's lesson reads, Jesus is the central figure throughout the Bible, and we need to see ourselves in relationship to him. He paid the penalty for our sin and is a ransom for many. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and all things are in his hands. His name is higher than all others, and one day every knee shall bow down to him. And they cite Mark chapter ten forty-five, which reads, For the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. From what do we sinful human beings need to be ransomed? From what do we need to be ransomed? Do we need to be ransomed from Satan? No. Do we need to be ransomed from God? No. Do we need to be ransomed from what God will do to us if we don't get the proper ransom? No. So the question of ransom begs the question to whom it would be paid. This is from the Tyndale Bible Dictionary. To whom was the ransom paid? This question has perplexed scholars for hundreds of years. Origin of Alexandria maintained that the ransom was paid to the devil. Origin's form of the theory was that Christ cheated the devil by escaping through his resurrection. Although Jesus Christ defeated Satan and liberates believers from Satan's bondage, Scripture does not indicate that the ransom was paid to him. God was wronged by human sin, yet he showed his great love in providing redemption. God declared humans guilty for their sin and imposed the death penalty for human transgression. Pause. Do you hear the infection here? Yes. Okay, the infection right here. What, what do you hear? God declared us guilty and imposed a death penalty. In other words, this is not a consequence. Death is not a consequence that sin brings. Death is a punishment that God imposes or inflicts. This is the, the infection. God is the source of, of inflicted death. We'll keep going with the Bible, comment, uh, Bible dictionary. Thus, Scripture indicates that the ransom was really directed by Christ to the Father. The biblical reference to Jesus' life as a ransom are echoed in the satisfaction views of the atonement. As Anselm of Canterbury in 1098 developed the satisfaction view of the atonement, emphasizing that the honor of God required satisfaction for sin. Later views emphasized the justice of God in requiring payment, ransom, for the just demands of the law and for the removal of the curse of the law, which is death. This is the penal substitution view and the view that uh, local theologians that I've had conversations with would hold. They would, they would say... God, God didn't require it for personal satisfaction. They would say how this has evolved here, that it was justice sake and the law required it. Paul emphasized the justice of God, which was met so that he would be just in justifying sinners who believe. Reformed theology emphasizes the ransom being paid by Christ's death to meet the satisfactions of God's justice in Christ's atonement. That's, that's the idea. Without using the term ransom, the same implications are carried in such condensed expressions as Christ died for our sins. Do any of these views that are read in this uh, uh, commentary actually present the truth as, as we believe it? 
No, it's not. These do not present the truth. They all come up short. In fact, I would, add, I would suggest that they all present a distortion that makes it harder for the final work and the final message of mercy to reach people. This is not the gospel message that is light in the world. This is the corruption of an imperial Roman God who is the source of inflicted pain and from whom we need to be protected. And thus we develop theologies that are designed to either hide us from God or protect us from God. Rather than praying like David, search me and see the wicked way, creating me a clean heart, O God. So what is the ransom then? And who, to whom is it paid? Well, what is the function of a ransom? How, what is the function? What does it do? Liberate. It liberates someone held in, in bondage. Okay, perfect. Well, then the, ask the question. What is it, after Adam and Eve sinned, that holds the human beings, humans, human sinners, in bondage? What holds us in bondage? Sin. Okay, lies about God. And so what would be the price to free us from lies? Truth. truth. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And is that the only thing that holds us in bondage or something else? Our sinful nature. Our sinful nature. That's right. Our own propensity toward fear, selfishness, survival drives, the carnal nature, if you want to use that language, our own nature holds us in bondage. So then the price to set us free would be truth that destroys lies and wins us to trust and a new nature. Can any human being, set Jesus aside for a moment, any human being other than Jesus, after Adam's sin, fix the human nature? No, this is part of what Christ came to do, to reveal truth, to destroy lies and win us to trust, and to develop a new sinless human nature that he offers to us as a free gift. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Devil holds the power of death. What's the power of death that he holds? Yes, he lies. John seventeen three. life eternal equals, this is life eternal, that they might know, me. know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ will not sent. So life eternal equals knowing God. If life eternal equals knowing God, what does eternal death equal? Not, not knowing God. So Satan has the power of death, and his power are the lies that he tells that we believe that keep us from knowing him. So one of the elements, one of the prices necessary to free us is the truth to destroy lies and win us to trust. Yet, we also needed a new nature, and it says in Hebrews 5, 8, 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Once made perfect? Wasn't Jesus always perfect? Jesus was always sinless. Always sinless. But Bible perfection actually refers to maturity of character. God can create sinless beings, but character is developed by the exercise of the free will of that sentient being. Exercise has to be developed. It can't be created de novo. Thus Christ as a human was tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. And he developed through his journey on earth as a human, a perfect human character. And this he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. And that's, you put the pieces together. No, your minds are draw, draw, drawing data from your, your, your computers there from the Bible record. Those who accept Christ is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. We have the law written on the heart and mind. We get the mind of Christ. We're renewed in the inner person. All this is achieved through Christ's victory, but this is the ransom price. So the ransom price paid, truth, the witness of trust, and a new nature 
so that we're recreated in the inner person. So then who is the ransom price paid to? Us. To us. That's right. Yes. Um, we were talking about why Jesus had to die, and you were talking about Christ perfecting. So was him dying something that was necessary as part of this reaching this mature perfection? Yes, absolutely. So if on any point along death's approach, if Christ uses his power to stop death from taking him, who does he save? So is that an act of selfless love or is that an act of self-centeredness? So the only way for him to eradicate the temptation to act in self-interest was to choose to give himself perfectly in love instead while being tempted to act in self-interest. And the only way to do that, and, and thus at the cross, he destroyed that very infection, and he rises in a new humanity. I would go even farther. If you understand what the Bible says about the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving or bringing life to the soul. So as Jesus restores the law of love perfectly into his own humanity and eradicates the infection he assumed, he tells his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over to evil men, they're going to crucify me, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise on the third day. How could he know that he was going to rise on the third day, yet, according to Desire of Ages, he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb? How could he do that? Character. Because seeing through the portals of the tomb would be a prophetic vision. He would actually have God open up the quarters of time and look through time and see the future. He didn't see that. However, how many of you can predict what will happen if I let go of this? How many can predict? Uh, only nobody. Really? Okay. Okay. All the hands go up. Um, if, if I let go of this, you guys can predict what will happen. But that's a future event. Do you have the gift of prophecy? How can you be so confident? How can you predict it so, so conclusively? Because you know the law. And so Jesus predicted what would happen when he restored the law of life into his own humanity. He would rise again. Because the law of love is the basis of life in God's, God's kingdom. Death could not hold him. Does that make sense? There were ample prophecies that he would rise on the third day as well. Yeah, those prophecies were prophetic, but his, his, uh, his predictions, I don't believe, were just prophetic. I believe they were understanding what he was actually here to accomplish. Uh, what made, you said that get your thoughts going, and I thought of uh, Isaiah 53, starting with verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Yeah, so did you notice that? He was going to come, take up our infirmities, take up our iniquity, take up our sin terminal condition in order to cure and heal, but we are going to misunderstand and we're going to teach that God is the one striking him, God is the one killing him. And that's exactly what is taught in the penal substitutionary theology, that God, in order for justice sake, had to put the sins on Christ and punished all the sins in Christ, ultimately striking his son and killing his son in our behalf, which is what the Bible prophesied we would misunderstand and do. It's not true. God never laid a hand on us on Christ's own words. My God, my God, why are you torturing me and killing me? No, why have you let me go? Why have you forsaken me? God didn't do anything other than surrender Christ to achieve what Christ chose to accomplish. Yes? And it's simultaneously being able to see the true nature of sin that that selfish heart, if given a chance, would take the ultimate step to kill him. Or to, to that's where I will fittest the soldiers striking out, being cruel, being awful, that sinful nature being just ugly and destructive. 
Yeah, and those things are contrasted, and you see those. Love and selfishness, so it's face-to-face at the cross. You see self-sacrificial love in Christ, and you see the ugliness of human selfishness and even demonic selfishness as the way Christ was treated. So this is out of a book called Desire of Ages, page 762. It says, The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character, and this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. So this author sees it the same way we do. So the ransom price to free us is the truth to destroy lies and win us to trust and a new perfect nature that we can partake of. And the metaphors, flesh and blood, unless you drink my, flesh, drink my blood and eat my flesh, eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have no part with me. Okay, Jesus, the word made flesh okay so unless we ingest the word and jesus is the way the truth and the life so ingesting the word or ingesting jesus is not physical uh to the physical body it's ingesting the truths that he brought into your mind and heart which destroy lies and wins to trust and you open the heart and he pours his life into his heart the life is in the blood thus we get the life of christ we get the new character same thing in the metaphor but we have to go past metaphor to the reality and then those symbols were translated to bread and wine same thing same symbols. Monday's lesson, first paragraph reads, One usually doesn't think of the sanctuary in the context of stewardship. Yet the link is there because the sanctuary is so crucial to our belief system and stewardship is part of the system. The correct understanding of the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. The correct understanding of the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. It is imperative that we understand the role of stewardship in light of this biblical concept. Can anybody here give me a clean, concise, you know, two-minute, 90-second, one-minute explanation of the sanctuary doctrine? How about one word? Jesus. 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 Okay. Which really doesn't explain the whole sanctuary doctrine, but I, I, I agree with you. Jesus is central. There's no question. But if one restricts themselves, and I would tell you, if you're going to have conversations with people about the sanctuary doctrine in our church or outside the church, you should start with this question. If you restrict yourself to inspired sources only, that means no Bible commentaries, that means no uh, sermons, that means no theological textbooks. Let's put all those aside, inspired sources only. What is the building material of the sanctuary in heaven? What's it actually constructed out of? If you start with that, you will shift the entire conversation from where they're at. Because their entire conversation will be based on a false idea. And the idea is that the sanctuary in heaven is built out of brick and mortar. Wood and gold and and inanimate objects. It's not. Not if you use inspired sources. So... Ephesians nine twenty uh, Ephesians two nineteen through twenty two. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. First Peter two four and five. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. 
And that's not symbolic. So they quoted in this paragraph, the correct understanding of the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. They quoted out of a book of Evangelism, page 221. And that same author, I'm going to quote to you from that same author since they're referencing her as an, as an authority. Let's see what this same author says about this temple. This is out of... Uh, Three manuscript release, 231. And there's multiple quotes. I don't have time to read them all. I'll just read one, which I think is the most poignant. The first tabernacle, built according to God's directions, was indeed blessed of him. The people were thus preparing themselves to worship in the temple, not made with hands, a temple in the heavens. The stones of the building built by Solomon were all prepared at a quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without the sound of an axe or hammer. The timbers were also fitted in the forest. The furniture was likewise brought to the house all prepared for use. Now, listen carefully. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and is fitting this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be a dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God can fit them for the temple in heaven. We are here as probationers. We must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed, and we must be stones fitted for the building. We are brought into church capacity with defects of character, but we must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God, for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. Amen. 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 There's another one out of uh, My Life Today, page uh, 268. The world is God's workshop, and every stone that can be used in the heavenly temple must be hewed and polished until it is tried and a precious stone, fitted for its place in the Lord's building. But if we refuse to be trained and disciplined, we shall be as stones that will not be hewed and polished and are cast aside at last as useless. And then it may be that such work needs to be done, that you are a rough stone, which must be squared and polished before it can fill its place in God's temple. So if you understand that the heavenly temple is a real physical place made of real physical beings, then scripture starts making more sense like this. Revelation 3.12. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. You mean uh, we're going to be stuck in a building for all eternity? We can't ever travel. We're just stuck in one little building in heaven. We can never will we leave it. Oh, that doesn't make any sense if it's an inanimate material. We're, we're locked in a room. It's prison. But when you understand we're the heavenly sanctuary is built out of people, that makes perfect sense. Never will you leave it. I will, now notice what else. I will write my name She's now write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. What's name in Bible? Character. Character. So we are going to have the character of Christ written within us and thus we become cleansed or fitted for the building in heaven. Here, or Psalms 23, 6. 
Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will interesting dwell in the house of the lord i'll never leave that building for all eternity see it makes no sense when you have this inanimate building it makes perfect sense when you understand that the building of heaven is built out of intelligent beings that's its building material and so whenever you're going to have a conversation with anybody about the sanctuary message start with understanding the reality of what it's constructed from if you don't start there you'll you'll just be confused yes and you'll end up at, at, at diverse points, yes. Continuing on that same thought, in your reading from Revelation 3, 12, 3, 13 says, if you have ears, then listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He's not talking to buildings. Exactly. So with this in mind, let's ask what's going on with Daniel 8, 14. 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Did you have a comment? Well, the thing is also, if you dwell in your own house, but you don't stay there. You want to go someplace? You go. You, you, you dwell in your own house. Yeah, but but Revelation said a pillar in the temple of God, and never again will he leave it. My heart changed. So that that's different than dwelling. Yeah. Okay, the Psalms one you might may be able to infer that, but not not the Revelation one. So what about Daniel eight fourteen two thousand three hundred days, and the sanctuary will be cleansed. How do you understand that? in the context of what the heavenly sanctuary actually is. And in the dark ages, when we suddenly begin to be, understand God for ourselves instead of just handed down by somebody else's word and their interpretation. Okay, good, good. Other thoughts? This is uh, from a book called Faith I Live By, written by one of the founders of the Adventist Church who helped establish this doctrine of the heavenly sanctuary. So it's the coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to you by Daniel 8.14. So we're talking a 2300-day prophecy here. The coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days presented by Daniel 7.13. And the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi are descriptions of the same event. Now, Daniel 8.14 really only tells us a time frame. That's all it tells us. If we want to know what's actually happening, maybe we should look at the other passage. This is Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he would be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. What do, what do refiner's fire and launderer's soap do? They cleanse. Interesting. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and purge them as gold and silver. So what's being cleansed at the end of the 2300-day prophecy? Books or people? Interesting. A certain group of people. A certain group of people, the Levites. Yep, those who and the Levites are the... Peter text we read, the priesthood of believers, those who have accepted Christ, have come back to trust, have opened their heart. Then he enters into this, this most holy place. So God gives Daniel a vision of the future. 2,300 years, the first 490 of those years were cut off for the people of, of uh, the descendants of Israel to finish their work and prepare the world for the advent of the Messiah. And then, at the end of that period of time, the theatrical enactment of the plan of salvation would be brought to an end. 
the, the oblations and sacrifices would cease, as it says in Daniel. Okay, everybody gets that, right? And it would be replaced by the reality. The reality of what Jesus accomplished. We're no longer looking forward. It's accomplished. Jesus has done it. So during the remaining years, though, if you read the entire context of uh, Daniel 8 and 9 and then put it together with uh, writings in the New Testament, you'll discover that there was a power that was going to arise, a little horn power that was going to war against the saints. And he was going to war against the saints until an event. Daniel 7.22, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. That's the New King James, or the King James Version, judgment was given to the saints. Some versions say something else. God pronounced judgment in favor of the saints, some verts say. And that version appeals to those who have the false law construct. They want to see a judicial process in heaven where God opens books and makes renderings and makes judgments. But the actual Hebrew is much more consistent with the King James, judgment was given to the saints. It means to impart. And judgment is a word that can mean discernment. Discernment was given to the saints. The saints are given the capacity to make judgments. Put it together with, with Revelation chapter 14. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Historically, the hour in which he sits in judgment. But what kind of war is going on here? This little horn is going to wage war and he's going to be winning the war until an event happens, until judgment is given to the saints. What kind of war? For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use, they're not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Now, if this is the war which centers on the knowledge of God, then how is the little horn waging war? It's not primarily a physical war. It's a war of constructs or ideas about God. Put it together with what Paul says in Thessalonians. And what does he say in Thessalonians 2, verse 1 through 4? Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that, now get this, he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this is around 60 AD. Christ has died on the cross. He's resurrected. He's ascended into heaven. Pentecost has happened. The Spirit's been poured out. Sometime after all these events, Paul says there's a, there's a man of sin, a man of lawlessness is going to rise. Some power of evil is going to arise, and he's going to set himself up in God's temple. Is he saying that this man of sin is going to ride up into heaven, knock Jesus off his heavenly throne, and begin reigning in heaven? Is that what he's saying? No. So what temple is this he's going to set himself up in? Ah, this is the little horn power that's waging war. He's going to wage war and, 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 and he's going to wage war and be winning until an event happens. So Paul's telling you the same thing, that, that this power is going to set himself up in God's temple, which is the, the human temple, proclaiming himself to be God. How? How could he do that? By getting people to accept a false version of God. How could he do that? Back to the Daniel text. He will seek to change, Daniel 7.25, a power will arise and seek to change times and laws. That little horn power, seek to change times and laws. How did that happen? 
And, and what difference does that make to setting oneself up in God's temple? And how's that still going today? How do we cleanse the temple from that? He changed the view of God's law from design, natural law, to impose. Yes. The, yes, he did. So, so the idea, if you think of the word law, there's design law, like laws of health, laws of physics, laws of gravity, the moral laws, how God has actually built his reality to operate. He is the creator. He builds space, time, energy, matter. His laws are the laws upon which reality operate. We can't make law like that, so we make rules. And then we threaten to punish you if you break our rules. That's how we operate. The church came to teach that God's law functions no differently than human law. A system of rules without consequence that the ruling authority oversees and inflicts punishment for breaking. This is beastly. This is the beastly system. No one can buy or sell, say him as the mark of the beast. And it came to be that all of Christianity has drunk in them, drunk on the wine, on the doctrine, the teaching that God's law functions like human law. Now, what's the evidence for that? Well, when was the last time a church committee got together and voted to change the law of gravity or the law of respiration? You know, in Loma Linda, sometimes they have bad pollution days and they could vote. If you remember the Adventist church on those days, the Adventists don't have to breathe. <laughs> Wouldn't it be convenient if they didn't have to on those bad days? Why don't they ever vote that? No church has ever voted such a thing. Why don't they vote it that way? Because they can't do it. They can't make it happen. So what would it mean if a church did vote to change God's law? Other than they do not see it as design law. They see it simply as rules that are open to change. And thus the changing of the commandments, which were changed, are simply evidences of the actual change of how God's law is viewed. As simply a system of rules. And that idea has infected Christianity... And the sanctuary has been contaminated, so we worship a dictator and we create theologies now that are designed to protect us and hide us from God rather than reconcile us to him. Covered by the robe of righteousness, so the Father can't see my sin. Washed in the blood, have Jesus stand as a mediator to plead between me and the Father. These are all distortions based on the, the lie. And thus, down the corridors of time, 2,300 years, and then the sanctuary be cleansed. This little horn power is going to wage war and overcome them until a time comes when discernment is given to the saints, until enough truth is recovered that we can actually see the difference between the two law contracts and reject those lies and embrace and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. We come back to designer worship. So let's talk about this idea of pleading then. So what happened in 1844, a movement began which opened the way for Christ to enter the most holy place and cleanse his people. And what is the most holy place? Here's a couple of quotes. This is three selected messages, 149. Jesus is our savior today. He is pleading for us in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and he will forgive our sins. It makes all the difference in the world with us spiritually whether we rely upon God without doubt as upon a sure foundation. Next one is uh, manuscript 42-1901. He fulfilled one phase of his priesthood by dying on the cross for the fallen race. He is now fulfilling another phase by pleading before the Father the case of the repenting, believing sinner presenting to God the offerings of his people. Notice what's being presented to God. The offerings of his people. What's being presented to God? Present yourself to God a living sacrifice. In other words, people are offering themselves to God. That's what he's presenting to God. Not something to appease him, but people who are presenting themselves to God after Christ has been pleading 
before the Father for them. What does all that mean? Well, can we first agree that if any Christian writer writes something that contradicts the Bible, we shouldn't believe it. That whatever Christian writer that writes truth that will harmonize with Scripture. Can we all agree with that? Okay. So however you understand these passages, this is what Jesus said, John 16, 25, and 26. Though I've been speaking to you figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father loves you himself. Another version is saying, I will not plead the Father in your behalf. So we can't have whatever we understand that previous comment to be, it can't be pleading to the Father. That would contradict Scripture, and we're not going to contradict Scripture. Jesus is not going to do it. Why? There's a reason. Because the Father loves you himself. And in fact, what does the Scripture say about that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his Son, but gave him up. How we not along with him give us all things? You see, the Scripture is consistent that God does not need persuading. He's always for us. It was always God working through his Son to accomplish our salvation. The idea that one member of the Godhead needs to plead with another member of the Godhead is part of the lie. Then what about the pleading before the Father that I just read, right? How do we understand that? Well, Jesus was speaking to his disciples in John 16, 12 through 14. Notice what Jesus said to them. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So, according to Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit who do, you, who do you think the Holy Spirit's listening to? He's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. Who is the Holy Spirit listening to? Ah, uh-huh. and he's going to take what's Christ and make it known to us. So, how do you put all that together? Does Jesus love you? Does he care for you? Does he want your salvation? Do you think he's pleading to you? Can you, can he plead in such a way that that you can hear. How? Because the Holy Spirit is listening and communicating. And who do you think Jesus is doing this before? Who is the sovereign who's overseeing the entire plan of salvation? God. And so Jesus is carrying out the Father's purposes in pleading before the Father to you and me. And the Holy Spirit is listening to those pleas and communicating them to your heart. So I'll give you some more scripture to support all this. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. This The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. I will put rich garments on you. 
Then I said, put a clean turban on his head, and they put a clean turban on his head, and clothed him, um, and put clothes on him. What do you understand that to mean? Who's accusing Joshua? Satan, the accuser. And, and who is the Lord speaking to? In this context, the Lord speaks to two. Does the Lord here plead to himself? He speaks to the devil, the Lord rebuke you, and he speaks to Joshua. Joshua. See, I have healed you. I have taken away your sin. I have fixed what's broken in you. So in this idea of pleading before God in heaven, do we all agree that Satan is our accuser? Do you think that in heaven that God the Father needs Jesus there to present Jesus' righteousness so the Father won't get confused by the devil's allegations? God Does God say to Jesus, wow, thank you, son. I almost believed the devil in what he was saying. If you hadn't presented the truth, I would have really gone with him. But how many times do you have it presented when Jesus is there to plead our case before the Father to defend us against the accusations of the devil as if the Father would listen to those? No, God says to the devil, Lord, rebuke you. We don't even listen to what you've got to say around here. You're a liar. But who does get confused by Satan's allegations? We do. Ah, say, who, is the, who are the ones who listen, get discouraged, guilt-ridden, overcome with shame, think they're not good enough for salvation, beyond healing, too sinful, too awful, no one could love them if they knew? Who is the one that listens to this garbage? So who do you think needs to be pled with by Jesus Christ not to listen to that garbage? That's who Jesus is pleading to. So the word, in addition to the Father, or along with the Father, pleading to us, adding his additional witness to what the Father's really like, and the truth about the Father is the pleading with the Father for us. Yes, so he's also interceding for us, it says in in Romans chapter 8, in addition to, that's right, if God is for us, who can be against us? And Jesus Christ, he's at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all interceding for your salvation. So I'm going to read to you uh, another quote from this Testimonies, Volume 5, page 470. Through the plan of salvation, Jesus is breaking Satan's hold upon the human family and rescuing souls from his power. So breaking whose hold? Satan's hold. All hatred and malignity of the arch rebel is stirred up, of the arch rebel is stirred up as he beholds the evidence of Christ's supremacy. And with fiendish power and cunning, he works to wrest from him the remnant of the children of men who have accepted his, uh, Christ's salvation. He leads men into skepticism, causing them to lose confidence in God and to separate, and to separate from his love. What, what's the dynamic here? Satan is stirring up with diffused ideas, false beliefs, skepticism so that we will lose confidence in God and separate ourselves from God. He tempts them to break his law and then he claims them as his captives and contests the right of Christ to take them from him. He knows that those who seek God earnestly for pardon and grace will obtain it. Therefore, he presents their sins before them to discourage them. He is constantly seeking occasion against those who are trying to obey God. Even their best and most acceptable service he seeks to make appear corrupt. By countless devices, the most subtle and most cruel, he endeavors to secure their condemnation. Pause. Who does Satan attempt to secure the condemnation from? Thank you. Get your mind around that. He's not seeking to get God to condemn you. He's seeking to get you to condemn you. 
Man cannot meet these charges himself. In his sin-stained garments, confessing his guilt, he stands before God. But Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea in behalf of all those who, by repentance and faith, have committed the keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause and vanquishes the accuser by the mighty arguments of Calvary. To whom is Jesus pleading in order to vanquish the accuser? Do you think he's pleading to the Father here? His perfect obedience to God's law, even unto death of the cross, has given him all power in heaven and on earth, and he claims of his Father mercy and reconciliation for the guilty. To the accuser, now notice who Jesus actually is going to speak to now. To the accuser of the people, it declares, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. These are the purchase of my blood, brands plucked from the burning. Those who rely upon him in faith receive the comforting assurance. Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. So who's being spoken to by Jesus in heaven? We cannot answer the charges of Satan against us. Christ alone can make an effectual plea in our behalf. He is able to silence the accuser with arguments founded not upon our merits, but upon his own. And who is he silencing the accuser to? To you guys. So he's before the Father, carrying out the Father's purpose, pleading, I died for you, I love you, I'll heal you if you let me, just trust me. There's nothing you've done that will stop me from fixing what's broken if you accept your refusal to let me in. Yes, yes. I, I just wanted to testify. <laughs> I just all of a sudden realized that if Jesus hadn't died, we would just have one word against another. Satan's word against God's word, saying, you know, Satan saying you're you're lost, and God saying you're found. But Jesus <clears throat> demonstrated how much He wanted us. Did you hear that? The, the cross becomes evidence. It's not just Jesus and God declaring their love for us. That, that because of the cross, we see demonstrated the, the self-sacrificial love and the proof of that love. It's not just one word against another word. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. When I be lifted up, I will draw. All. Yeah, yeah. Now, now the uh, judgment of this world, now the uh, prince of this world will be cast out. I, if I'm lifted up, will draw all unto me. And cast out of the hearts and minds of intelligent beings. That's where he's cast out of with the truth, uh, uh, what Christ revealed. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph. The sanctuary is central because it is where the great truth of salvation is expressed so powerfully, where the meaning of the cross is revealed in all our doctrines, one way or the other, must be linked to the gospel promise and salvation. Like the spokes of the wheel... Other doctrines come out from the great truth of salvation by faith in Jesus. Thoughts about that? So I want to say that Jesus is central. And all of our doctrines are meaningful to the degree they inform us about God, his true character, his methods, his principles. If you stand the doctrines up as standalone doctrines with proof texts to prove the, the academic and, and historic veracity of that doctrine disconnected from what it says about God then we can have all the right doctrines and still crucify Christ and want him off the cross by sunset and that's historically what happens 
Third paragraph, notice our doctrinal beliefs influence who we are and the direction in which we are going. Doctrines are not just abstract theological ideas. All true doctrine is anchored in Christ and all should in various ways impact how we live. In fact, one could say justifiably that our identity as Seventh-day Adventists is rooted in our doctrinal teachings more than anything else. The teachings then, which we uh, derive from the Bible, are what make us who we are as Seventh-day Adventists. What do you think about this? Who cares? <laughs> so do you become rule following, or do you become a heart transformed people who let God shine through and transform our hearts so that others can see God? Okay. Other comments. Our characters are what make us who we are. So notice, our identity as Seventh-day Adventists is rooted in our doctrines more than anything else. Well, they're, they're right. That seems true, but yeah. our identity is supposed to be right. only a Seventh-day Adventist. Well, well, well. Christian. Okay. I'm going to challenge this, yes. It occurs to me that uh, newspapers and most magazines are written at the seventh or eighth grade level of reading so that people can see the size of the letters and they can get the concepts through that that level of, of thinking, if you will. And it seems to me that our church has followed an analogy to that in the sense, or maybe not just our church, but all spiritual leaders have, have seemed to dumb down what they think the important things are for us. So, 2,000 years ago, to the Pharisees and Sadducees who crucified Christ do so because they disagreed with Christ on the list of doctrinal statements. Could somebody attest to all the doctrinal statements of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and still be an enemy of God? Yes. yes. Or any other church. Uh, but yes, but we're specifically here because that's where the... But you're right, any, any doctrinal statement, that's right. Then is our identity... Remember we read that one out of Revelation? I will write on him the name of my God. Okay, Is our identity really determined by the doctrinal statements we adhere to? No. Or is it supposed to be derived by having the character of Christ reproduced within? Or maybe I'm mixing issues here. Maybe the authors are speaking about institutional identity, the, the organization, and I'm speaking of individuals um, you know, believer identity. Maybe, maybe we're mixing issues. Uh, but question for that would be, are institutions saved? No. No, I don't think there's any institution, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church as an institution, that gets saved. People get saved. Along with the Jewish church, no, the beliefs themselves did not save them. What the beliefs did was to try to portray a, a more correct image of God, what he's really like. And, they, and the Jews screwed up, and so can or are we. But the idea of Seventh-day Adventism is to try to take note of what God is really like, the state of the dead. Why is that a good thing? You know, the Sabbath, why is that a good thing? There, it is meant to not save us, but to be able to make us a a truer influence about who God is. And I'm going to suggest to you, the most important doctrine has been left out. 
And the most important doctrine is the truth about God's character and his design methods of law of love. And because we don't have a doctrine on that, we instead have all these stand-up doctrines that make us unique with all these things, but it's still disconnected to a certain degree from the truth about God's character. And in fact, when you have the imperial law in there instead, you can stand up the Seventh-day Sabbath as an arbitrary test of obedience, and if you don't keep it as a test of loyalty to God, then God would be required to use his power to kill you, and thus you become an obstructor to the gospel message. Yes. I appreciate so much what you had said several weeks back about will there be any, and you listed all various denominations in heaven, uh, Catholic Baptist, including and then concluding with Adventists, and the answer was a resounding no. And then it was that we will all be Christians, we will all be those who love God, that there is not a denominational Amen. identity per se in heaven. It is, it is a heart. And we're not all Christians, though. Even the Bible talks about those who don't even know about. That's right. By their own, they're alone to themselves because they they were confronted by good and evil in their own little setting. Maybe in Papua New Guinea somewhere, and they chose good. That's uh, Romans chapter two, starting verse twelve, referring to the dream of Wesley. Yes, yes. Well, when identity comes to mind, the verse um, they will know you're my disciples because you love. So John thirteen thirty four and thirty five. A new command I give you, love one another, as you have loved, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is Jesus' statement about how do you know whether you're a follower of Christ or not? Whether you love one another. The Jews in Christ's day were a distinct people. They were people identified them, recognized them, they dressed uniquely, they, they were completely separate in, in, in Christ's day, and, and Yet they also had a character that they presented too, a character of cold, uncaring, lack of compassion. And thus, when Christ spoke to the woman at the well, her first comment was, what are you, a Jew, doing talking to me, a Samaritan? That's not supposed to happen. Okay? It was completely outside because they had presented themselves in such a way to misrepresent the gospel message. And so I say there's true Judaism of 2,000 years ago, which is seen in Jesus Christ. He's what a true Jew should look like. And there's false Judaism, which is really what the nation did. And I would suggest today there's true Adventism, which will look like Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay? And then there's false Adventism, which will look like the people who crucified Christ. And I think the same thing's going on. And, and you could say true Christianity and false Christianity, not just, not just Adventism. Yes, um, another comment. Boy, we're running out of time. So let me give you a couple of quotes from, uh, from Ellen White regarding um, you know, maybe how we might want to present. From the light that has been given to me, again, I wonder where that light's coming from. You, you, you can decide that for yourself. Uh, we should fear that these men and rulers will take their uh, position against the work and then they will act like the devil. But every advantage should be taken to get acquainted with these men, not in a way to produce anything like prejudice. We must appear to them as trying to help others, working on the line of the Christian help work. As they see the good work we do on these lines, their prejudice will be removed in a large measure and their hearts will be opened for more. Then we should not present the Sabbath, but let, the, let us present Christ. What if they should begin to oppose, you say, oh, that's the Seventh-day Adventist. Lift Christ up higher and still higher. Amen. And then... There was kept before me that his 
that his people must be a combined, united power in love and efficacy to become a light amid the moral darkness. By these combined forces, he uh, specified that they may be one. Hear it. Everyone who is a Seventh-day Adventist, hear it. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. I in them, thou in me, and they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, and thou hast loved me. The Lord described the difficulties they should meet. Having called their minds to rise to an eminence, he bids them behold the vast confederacy of evil arrayed against God, against Christ, against all who unite with these holy powers. Christ tells them they were to fight in fellowship with all the children of light. There's more, but I'm going to stop there because we're running out of time. And then uh, I didn't get quite get to the three angels' messages, but I'm going to just close with the three angels' messages um, through the imposed law lens versus through the design law lens. And this is the three angels' messages as I hear them given through the imposed law lens. Be afraid and sing praises because the time has come for God's heavenly tribunal to sit, and only those who worship in the right way on the right day will be saved. The Christian churches that worship in the wrong way on the wrong day are a confused mass, and we need to leave their company. Second angel. And the third, those who worship on the wrong day will be marked as being God's enemy, and God will use his power to torment them either for eternity or as long as they deserve before he kills them. That's how I've historic. Have you, have, did, did I misstate that, or is that how you've heard it presented too? Okay, that's the imposed law view. Here's the design law view. Be in awe of God and reveal his true character in love a true character of love in your life. For the time in earth's history has come for everyone to make a right judgment about God and his character and methods. Uh, Call them back to worship and adore him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Call them back to design law of love. Because Babylon, the confused system of imposed law with all its various rituals, rules, and lists of do's and don'ts is a system of confusion in which God's law is misrepresented as imposed and has resulted in a contradictory system in which Christians, Christianity is fractured into 34,000 different groups, all with different interpretations and regulations. And everyone who accepts the lie about God as a dictator... Um, mark themselves in their forehead as truly believing God is like a dictator and his law is imposed and God is the source of imposed punishment and death and those who go on go along with such perverse system of coercion based on human law mark themselves in their hands and both groups will be tormented in mind, heart, and character when they come into the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. For having rejected the truth about God, there is no healing for their terminal condition. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you that you are the creator God who built the universe to operate only in harmony with your perfect character of love, truth. We ask the spirit of truth and love to take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, win us completely to trust and transform us to be like you and make us effective to take this final message to the world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.